and welcome students to another Archon Lecture. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jane. I'm your other host, Nero. And today we're talking about, in our final lecture here, we talk about 1.0. And if you're not familiar with, you know, if you're not that familiar with Final Fantasy XIV, uh, that might sound a little weird. You know, like, what what is 1.0? Well, you know, for the most part, everything in this game is is playable at all times. Basically, all of the content that they have put in it since the Realm Reborn is accessible and playable anytime you want, as long as there are people around to play it. The exception to this is the original version of this game, 1.0. Yes, there's a reason why the current version of the game is called a Realm Reborn. They did, in fact, reborn a whole realm. Um, and that is to say that the the original version of the game does not exist. It was burned to the ground, both like metaphorically and also kind of literally. Um, it was kind of a nightmare. Um, and you know, before we get into sort of the particulars of what actually happens in the story of 1.0, we should probably talk about what actually happened that made them want to blow it up. Yeah. I think this aspect of Final Fantasy XIV's story as a, a, a as a, a game is perhaps the thing that it is most well known for. Well, it used to be now it's most well known for being the game that's so successful they had to pull it from sales at one point. Yeah. Um you know, suffering from success, but like the it is a remarkable achievement that this game still exists and is as successful as it is because this is not a thing that basically any company would do other than Square Enix who is I would say uh perhaps the most insane video game developer out there for sure they are exceedingly idiosyncratic like even more so than Nintendo I feel they just they're a lot they are a lot, they make a lot. and this and this was a bi- this was a big deal um but as to why it was such a big deal we kind of have to roll back the, back the clock a little bit right um we have to roll it back actually to like uh god i believe it's uh like 2008 2009 um final fantasy 11 was also an mmo final fantasy 11 was sort of the precursor to final fantasy 14 uh still going by the way you can still go play final fantasy 11 online if you want um i have heard it's a bit weird but generally it's fairly beloved um it was uh japan's first big mmo uh stuff like uh like everquest hadn't really taken off there so this is like sort of their their first big introduction to that yeah, and it, I don't think it, it really got a foothold here that much because at that point, World of Warcraft was still the king of the scene, basically. Like, it was extremely difficult for most MMOs to do much of anything in the Western market. Um, but it still it still has its its players. It still has its, uh, you know, the, the people who love it. It's very jank as one might expect from a MMO from 2008. But a lot of, you know, a lot of the the kind of 
building blocks of Final Fantasy XIV can be seen in Final Fantasy XI. Exactly, exactly. Uh, there's there's a lot of similarities, and a lot of the similarities are owed to the fact that when they decided to make Final Fantasy XIV, most of the creative and production staff behind fourteen was pulled from eleven, and that includes the uh, producer and director of the game, uh, Hiromichi Tanaka and Nobuaki Komodo. Uh, and these two, and, and these two have a fairly deep development history in the company. By the way, they they worked on stuff like Secret of Mana and Chrono Cross, so these are not like new guys. Yes. Now you may notice that I don't believe either of those people are attached to Final Fantasy fourteen anymore. No. Um, and there's a reason for that. So fourteen's development was almost immediately troubled from the from the get go. Um. And, you know, as with, as with so many things, one of the big problems to start with was that they were stretching their engine to its limits. You can see this all over the place. It happens to every Bethesda game. You know, it, it's happened to the, Cry, uh, the Crytek engine, I believe. The, you know, there are, you're making a new game. You don't want to necessarily rebuild the guts you're just gonna see well yeah this engine's pretty old but i bet we could you know beat it into shape yeah and and that's and that's kind of where they started um and had it been left there uh i imagine that a lot of the sort of core issues uh on a structural level wouldn't really be that bad but there's a second wrinkle to this problem um, a few months into development, uh, a lot of high-level programmers, like their seasoned staff, were basically pulled off of projects across the whole company, uh, not just 14, to go work on Crystal Tools. Now, Crystal Tools was their new engine, um, and originally it was only supposed to be used for Final Fantasy 13. That was, like, the point of it. But... Um, at some point, it had been decided that they were going to expand it and repurpose it so it could be used in other projects. And one of those projects was 14. So now they're in a situation where they need to learn an entirely new development process with a new engine and uh, basically either basically rebuild what they already had uh, from the ground up. Not a lot of stuff to my understanding, was very easily importable. You had to kind of redo things that, that weren't compatible with the new software, which was already a problem because one of the other issues with 1.0's development was the assets. And, you know, there's a very famous uh, sort of thing that, uh, that people talk about, and that's uh, the million polygon barrel. Yeah, so there's kind of a weird discrepancy when it comes to the quality of the cutscenes in Final Fantasy XIV 1.0, especially when compared to the cutscenes that would go forward. They're insanely good for an MMO. Um, and you might think, well, surely this is reflective of the rest of the game's quality. Um, not no yeah not necessarily not really um 
the the cutscenes were definitely a large part of it. Uh, my understanding is that uh, one of the issues is that you had um, sort of the the focus was uh, really heavily on the graphical fidelity and the looks of the game. Um, because at that point, by the time Final Fantasy XIV was being released, Final Fantasy as a property had existed for a long time. And the past entries, the, the recent past entries, um, had been lauded for their graphical fidelity and like and, and how cool they looked. You know, all this stuff on the PS2. Like, people were really into the way those games looked. And they were very beautiful. But... Um, they they ran into a real issue with uh, with developing for fourteen because the sort of pipeline that they had for making those assets uh, was really 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 inefficient. Um, they spent a an incredible amount of time on on these individual details on on things like uh, individual cutscenes. Um, minor animations, um, props like uh, barrels and things like that. And these received a, a disproportionate amount of attention, whereas um, in other parts of the game, uh, you would have just uh, these very sparse, uh, very unfinished-looking environments like Many many assets would be would be cloned and duplicated and sort of chopped and screwed around. Uh, there were areas that just just very much did look unfinished. And this was you know getting close to release. This was getting close to beta. Things still looked like this because there was just no um, there the direction wasn't there uh, where it needed to be. That reminds me of the tweet from the Final Fantasy XV director. You know, another game that spent an incredibly long time in development, had a very troubled development. Um, where he was like, me and the boys are out here taking pictures of this rock that we're going to put in the game, and we're going to make it look really good. And it's like, yeah, th that philosophy of making Final Fantasy look the best it can, perhaps at the detriment of other things like gameplay and story um continued through this entire era of, of final fantasy development sort of um and the next big problem they had was you know they were spending all this time making the the best goddamn barrels you'll ever lay your eyes on they didn't really look at what popular mmos were doing currently they did little to no market research because they were just basically like we don't need to do that shit we made final fantasy 11 the most popular mmo in japan who fucking cares pretty much they basically they said the same thing that blizzard said for like 10 fucking years yeah and it didn't work out well for them either uh they really had this like there, there was there was a bit of an arrogance thing i think um, and maybe arrogance is a is an uncharitable way to to phrase it, but it was definitely like there's there's a cockiness involved, right? And to be fair, they did sort of earn it. Like uh, eleven did numbers; it did some real numbers. Um, but you know, fourteen was being released several years later. Uh, the market had changed very considerably, and uh, this was a release that was going to. Be in a world that had 
uh, a much easier time, you know, having uh, a larger scale MMO. Like something to bear in mind about like Eleven, for example, uh, was that it was, I believe, it was most popular on the PS2, uh, actually, which sort of was was interesting. It was kind of a closed ecosystem in a lot of ways. It was like it was very. It was very much like uh, taking advantage of a market that just didn't have any competition. But by the time 14 was coming out, stuff like World of Warcraft and and its contemporaries had broken out of the North American market. And, and they were very popular in Europe, and they were starting to gain popularity in Japan. And the sort of obstinate refusal to do that market research really shot them in the foot and it's funny because when they made 11 they actually spent a ton of time researching everquest which was kind of the big name on campus at the time and this was kind of before world of warcraft like got huge um so everquest was still like the big one yeah and it's not like there weren't people telling them that hey, this shit isn't going to work. This shit isn't acceptable. Um, both the, the QA department and uh, localization uh, in North America were like, hey, um, we're looking at this, you know, we're getting the previews here, all the beta builds, and uh, this is dog shit. I don't think you should release this. But their concerns were brushed off. It's like, ah, what do you guys know? We're, we're the people who made Final Fantasy XI. Don't you know that? Yeah, don't you know? So they released it, and everyone hated it. It was basically immediately torn to shreds in 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 the games media. Yeah, the games media, popular consciousness. It it sold pretty well at first, but as people got a hold of it and started playing it, they just absolutely hated it and uh there's a lot of reasons for that um one of the reasons is this game ran like ass um something that you know beyond the issues of having like say a billion poly barrel copy pasted 25 times in you know gridania um slowing your game to a crawl that's bad what's worse is when the fundamental core systems that the game's events are built on also lag you and the server at the same time. So they had this sort of scripting system that they used for basically everything that happened in the game. Um, All the battles, all of the the stuff that would happen in the overworld, um, this, this was all scripted, but the scripting was for whatever reason really really hard on basically every piece of hardware involved and and that was complete ass to play through but it doesn't stop there there's other problems with the game near do you want to do you want to list off a few things that 1.0 didn't have somehow sure so a lot of, you know, if you ever touch Final Fantasy fourteen as it is now for, like, I don't know, 15 minutes, you'll probably get a very good understanding of how things work in terms of basic functions. Um, 1.0 was missing most of those. For instance, it had no auto-attack. 
the sort of, you know, thing that, you know, keeps your DPS up when you're not pressing buttons actively. Didn't have it. Yeah. Uh, the job system, very integral to Final Fantasy XIV. Very integral to Final Fantasy didn't, in general, I would say. Didn't have it. You just had access to every single action you could possibly do in the game and it was up to you to just sort of make a hot bar and figure that figure it out you figure it out asshole good luck with that shit uh so primals either by the way yeah primals you know big boss fights uh none of those we we don't have any of those um mounts you know a thing that Everyone loves it in MMO. You love to ride around on a funny guy. Yeah, Final Fantasy, famous for the chocobo, the beautiful yellow bird. Everyone wants to ride a chocobo. Can't do it. No, not in this one. Not, Fuck you. Yeah, not in this one. The Grand Company system also didn't exist. Uh, dungeons. There were no dungeons in 1.0. That's insane. You can't. I don't understand how you don't how you ship an mmo without instance dungeons it is kind of nuts they just it they just weren't in the game the the instance dungeons system just wasn't built uh at the 1.0 release what they did have they had guild leaves and leave quests so hey there's that and they had a fatigue system which meant that if you played for more than like i don't know it was like an hour two hours at a time or something like that it like super heavily punished your xp gain rate um and this was really bad in 1.0 specifically because level cap requirements were really harsh like um the the story and scenario quests in the game were level gated all of them um and that's not that different from how it is now but the level requirements were really kind of inflated um and you gained XP so slowly, you'd run into this issue where you would be sort of ground to a halt in the middle of doing a quest for, for the main story of the game, and you'd have to go, you know, fuck off and do a bunch of other stuff before you were sort of allowed to progress, which is a design philosophy that can work in other games. Grinding isn't inherently bad in mmos but it was really really bad in 14 because the game didn't really give you very many good ways to do that but look at that barrel but look at that barrel though um look at these cutscenes they just look so good they did look really good but uh but yeah people weren't happy people were really really unhappy with this product and at first corporate was fairly willing to just sort of brush it off like ah you know 11 had a rough launch we'll patch it we'll patch it we'll patch it but the problems were a bit deeper than that and eventually as they sort of realized that not only were the problems not going away but the bad press wasn't going away they sort of went into full-on like panic recovery mode and they put together like a a task force of a bunch of seasoned producers and developers to try and salvage the project and this is sort of where the main character of this particular story comes in they brought in the cleaner he's here to fix your problems yes so 
at the head of this task force was a fella named Naoki Yoshida. And anyone who's even in the vicinity of Final Fantasy XIV mostly knows him more by his nickname, Yoshi P. How did he get that name? I don't actually know. We'll probably... I'll look that up later. But he is the current producer of uh, Final Fantasy XIV and perhaps one of the most beloved men on the planet, I would say. Um, He's at least top ten. Oh, for sure. Definitely in the top ten. And the reason for that is he was the head of this task force. He and a bunch of other people, uh, you know, they, they they, they were invited into a a flaming room by Square Enix uh, and said, all right, uh, get to work fixing it. And then, you know, Tanaka and Komodo both peace out, stepped down from, from producing because I, frankly, I would too, if this is what I had wrought. And so basically what happened is they tried very hard to find a way to fix this game through patching to just like hammer it into shape but the, the you know you know the gif of the guy from Ratatouille reading that letter and he's slowly getting more panicked yeah it's a little bit like that i imagine that that is what yoshi p's reaction was as he got deeper and deeper and, and he saw that just like the it patching wasn't good to be enough and so he walked into corporate offices and he gave them two options. He, he said, all right, there are two ways that we can go about salvaging this game. The first one is, of course, the extensive patching. And that really wasn't going to fix anything. It would be a band-aid at best. You will always be trying to catch up and never addressing any of the underlying causes of these issues. And it, it would, you know, you, it's, a, it's a Sisyphean task. You're never going to get anywhere just trying to patch things away. The second option was more um, drastic. Yeah, it was a little severe. He was like, yeah, we can, we can patch it. It won't do anything. It won't fix anything. Games will be dog shit. Option two, blow it up and start again. Yeah, and shockingly, corporate went for it. Uh, I can only imagine how that actual presentation went um, that convinced all of these board members to agree to basically rebuild the game from the ground up with like a cool, you know, couple tens of millions of dollars in the pocket to to fund that. But uh, whatever whatever Yoshi said to them definitely definitely scared uh, scared them into uh, into doing that. So so they did. They they ended up putting into motion. The, the groundwork that would create a realm reborn. Now, there were a couple of small problems with this approach. First off, the game still existed. They still had to support Final Fantasy XIV as it still existed. And this was for two very critical reasons. One, this was going to cost a fuckload of money. And they needed to have at least some money still coming in from this game to justify basically spending all of the money to make it a second time. Um, But probably more importantly, the second reason is they really wanted to make sure that they retained their loyal audience. Now, 
1.0 did not have a particularly large amount of diehard fans, but it did have some. And they knew correctly that the only way that they were going to bounce back from this really well was to sort of rebuild that trust and try to um, have their core user base as satisfied as possible. Because there's your evangelists right there. Those are the people who are really going to word of mouth, get everybody to be like, hey, you know, 2.0 is coming out. We all, you're getting excited. Come on and try it out. And that's what's going to like hook people to actually play the game. Without that, you know, relying on a traditional marketing campaign probably wasn't going to be that effective considering how poorly received the game was in the first place. Yes. And so they got to work. They had to keep the game going, keep people pleased. And so they put a fair amount of effort into the 1.x patches, the post-game stuff here, um, to try and, and retain as many people as they could. Um, knowing, of course, that they were literally going to blow it all up very soon yeah um there's there's an interesting part of the the noclip documentary which is one of the sources that we're using for this uh this sort of recap here uh there's an interesting bit where koji fox uh michael christopher koji fox who was the head of the localization team for for enemy of the show uh yeah and somewhat enemy of the show i've 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 cooled on on mr koji fox's work a little bit as the years have gone on but he's got some he's got some issues with his stuff we'll we'll get into that once we start actually playing error but yeah so there's a really interesting thing uh that that uh that koji fox brings up in that documentary and it's that um when they were doing the actual uh 1.x patch quests uh they were kind of given free reign to do whatever they wanted. Uh, this is actually this is where Hildebrand was introduced. Unfortunately, um, this is where uh, a lot of the more like nuts stuff in the story comes from. Like this, this is where you know the the limiter was kind of ripped off because, of course, they knew that basically no matter what they did, uh, it didn't matter. It was all going away. So they were allowed to kind of get wet and wild with it and they uh apparently uh at least according to koji fox uh he feels that the best work they ever did was in the the 1.x uh patch quest so it's a little bittersweet for them that all that content's kind of gone forever and of course during all of this they were also working on the new game and one might say well how could you possibly rebuild a game from the ground up and and the answer is of course with a fuck ton of spreadsheets so many spreadsheets yoshi p loves microsoft excel so basically my understanding of his approach to trying to get arr built uh in the time frame that they had uh they they had a pretty tight time frame the the thing the corporate really wanted and what the development team really wanted was they wanted ARR to release within the life cycle of the PlayStation 3. Um, that was kind of a tough ask because we're talking about, you know, about 2010 to 2012 here, which was getting towards the end of the PS3's life cycle. Um, 
So they really, really had to had to work quickly. So you know how how are they going to achieve that? So Yoshi P's sort of general pipeline that he built was to take all of the tasks required to build ARR, and uh, he split them into different parts. So uh, a few of those parts went to the people maintaining 1.0, things that could be slotted into the existing game um, and then just imported into into 2.0 when it released. Things like jobs, um, uh, primal fights, uh, dungeons, stuff like that. Uh, mounts that was all put into the patches of 1.0 so the the content they were building for 1.0 not all of it got deleted of course they were fairly strategic about it and they tried to make sure that most of what they put in was going to transfer over uh to minimize sort of the the work they had to do everything else they basically broke down to the smallest possible divisible unit of that task and he was like, okay, do this as efficiently and quickly as possible. And when you sort of break things down in that way, you, you know, cumulatively uh, spend a pretty good amount of time on all of these things, but you're doing it in a way that's a bit faster than you would doing it uh, sort of the way they had been doing it. So while ARR ultimately does feel like a game that was rushed it does not feel like a game that was rushed as much as it actually was and that's a pretty big accomplishment i think yes it certainly it is it is a remarkable achievement in game design that a realm reborn exists and that final fantasy 14 is what it is today um and that, I guess that sort of brings us to the beginning of the actual story of 1.0 itself, which is the foundation of a lot of things that happen uh, in, in A Realm Reborn. It is. Uh, there's, there's a fairly reasonable amount of content that... So the, the interesting thing about 1.0's sort of story content is that it is both relevant and irrelevant to everything else that happens in the game. Um, something that they, they put a lot of effort into when they, you know, reborn to the realm was they wanted to make sure that players who started the game who had not played the original wouldn't feel lost or beholden to content that they would never be able to touch. So most of the stuff that happens in 1.0 kind of, I'm not going to say doesn't matter, but it's very contained. It's very isolated. Uh, the stuff with uh, like Louis Swa and the Circle of Knowing and all that stuff. That's that's all foundational, but not necessary to understand. Uh, but we're gonna go into it here because it's interesting. Yeah, like you can basically get most of what you absolutely need to know f- uh, going into the beginning of our army born by watching the flames of truth cinematic, uh, which I believe plays at believe plays at the beginning of our army born and is also just on YouTube. It was the, it was the trailer, um, which shows meteor, the, the, the apocalypse that befalls the world. Um, 
But there's a lot of stuff that is hidden and tucked away within these these twisting confines of 1.0 that is it is very fascinating. It is. It's extremely and, fascinating. And most of this centers around a figure who is almost entirely absent from 2.0 onwards. They 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 pop up every so often, but Nail Van Darnus, the main villain of Final Fantasy XIV 1.0, is basically entirely erased from the game. Yeah, the Nail Van Darnus, the White Raven, uh, this guy is kind of, in some ways, he's sort of the main character of 1.0, but, uh, but yeah, it basically disappears uh after this and there's kind of good reason for that there's uh there's there's some events that happen in the uh, in the 1.0 patch quests uh that we'll get to in a bit but um sort of the uh important thing uh i guess when it comes to the story of 1.0 sort of foundationally is that most of the story prior to like them deciding that they're going to reborn the realm most of that story is like weird and kind of convoluted and doesn't really connect to very much else uh it's is it's there there's not a whole lot of threads there most of the story of 1.0 takes place basically after they already decided to nuke it which is really interesting um i know that one oddity is that there is a nightmare that the player could have that ties into the story of 1.0. That is just like... There's lots of oddities like that throughout the history of this game. There is. We'll actually get to the nightmare a little bit later, because it's kind of important. Um, Yeah. But for now... So where do we start? uh, We start basically uh, where... So everyone knows about sort of the Garlean Empire. They're sort of the primary big bads of uh, Final Fantasy XIV, at least in the in the early days. So Garle- so, so Garlemald uh, rose to power, say, I think it's like 30, 40 years prior to 1.0, and uh, they invaded um, most of the Great Three Continents, uh, which is to say uh, Ilsebard, Othard, and Aldenard. Uh, and Aldenard is where Eorzea is. Um, you might think, I thought that w- the continent was called Eorzea. I also did. I didn't know it was called Aldenard until today. Yeah, neither did I, really. Um, I, yeah, I guess Eorzea is like the country? It is referred to as the realm. So I guess it's like the vague territory that all of the city-states are in, or whatever. It's very weird. Uh, the geopolitics of Hydaelyn are a bit strange. But uh, but yeah, so, so the Garleans took over most of the sort of known world, and then they wanted to go and invade Eorzea. Um... This was a- and we talked a little bit about what happened in our lore episode, which is a really big dragon woke up. Yeah, a really big dragon does wake up, though we'll we'll get to we'll get to him shortly. Um, for now, basically, uh, you have uh, good old Gaius von Failsar over here, and he's personally responsible 
more or less, for taking over Eorzea. And his method of doing so is fairly classical, right? He just wants to march in there with a big army and then subjugate everybody. Nail has a little bit more creativity, you might call it. Um, his thing is he wants to use Allegan technology to deal with subjugating other nations. Um, in his mind, right, mostly the deal is that um, Nail wants to, A, sort of live up to the expectations uh, that uh, the of the legacy of uh, the Darnesses, right? Which is they they're fairly into this all all this elegant technology stuff. Um, but beyond that, uh, they also just sort of are really into this sort of ancient lore and magic stuff. And uh, Nail finds out about Meteor. Yeah, big. Red, well, it's not that big, but it is big, I guess, technically. The the, the red moon, Dalamud. The minor moon of Dalamud. Uh, you know, Nail gets real interested in that. And starts thinking, you know, I think that might be some kind of Allegan uh, relic. Yeah. What if we start fucking with it? What if we start fucking with it? So, they end up getting... So, there's there's a, a lunar transmitter... Uh, that they have. So they they have the lunar transmitter. They take it to Basia Citadel. Basia is sort of another territory. I think I'm I'm pretty sure it's in Ilsebard, which is like the main continent that um uh that Garlemald is on. Uh, but yeah, yeah. take it to Basia Citadel, uh, which is occupied, and they do a bunch of funny experiments on it. And the person who's responsible for doing most of those experiments is Midas Non Garland, who is Sid Garland's dad. Um, it doesn't go great. The Basia Citadel is completely destroyed in an experiment. Um, everyone inside dies. Thankfully, Sid. Not inside it at the time, he went in there to attempt to, you know, talk some sense into his father, but... That didn't go not... so well. That went really poorly for a lot of reasons. Um, yes. Th- those reasons, by the way, you'll... If you ever play uh, the Bosian Resistance quests, you'll find out what happens there, but... Uh, but yeah, no, it goes really, really poorly. Bazi Citadel is completely annihilated from orbit. Um, this is a big smoking crater now, and basically nobody survived. Uh, Nail's fine, though. Presumably they weren't in the building at the time. And he's like, well, okay. Yes, we did glass basically an entire city, but that's kind of proof that we're onto something here. Um, as any good scientist would say, as any normal, well-adjusted person would say after an incident like that. Well, of course. Um, however, uh, when he tried to convince the Emperor, Solus Voskalvis, of this, uh, he was basically told to fuck off. Because, uh, well, it, it was deemed a danger to the Empire itself. And, like, there's no way he is putting any more money or time towards this insane bullshit that might just blow all of them up. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Solus was, was, was fairly reasonably afraid that this dude was just going to ruin everything, uh, and it would suck really bad. So, uh, instead, Gaius gets, you know, Gaius and the 14th Legion, eh, uh, go ahead and Uh. they get most of the Emperor's support and whatever. So, so, uh, they go in and they take over Alamigo. Uh, and Alamigo had, at that point, just overthrown the Mad King Theodoric, who was just, like, a huge tyrant and a huge piece of shit. Everybody hated him, um, and he caused all kinds of problems. And there was, like, a whole revolution led by a bunch of communist magicians, and it was awesome. And then Gaia shows up and just kind of ruins everything. Yeah, the... the uh... Nation of Alamigo was politically and militarily vulnerable, as one usually is after a gigantic revolution. Um, and he basically just swept the whole thing up. Meanwhile, Darnus and the uh, the Seventh Legion uh, are are put in charge of the Eastern Theater of of uh, you know continuing operations over in Authord, and he is not happy about this development that that fucking Gaius von Balesar the the man who's you know greatest imagination is what if we got a lot of guys and conquered a place is now in charge of his his beautiful plan to conquer aldernod while he's fucking around in doma uh so he begins to you know do some scheming as one does oh yeah gotta do some scheming and one of the things that they sort of find out uh through all the scheming is that uh, there's this place called Silver Tear Lake, and Silver Silver Tear Lake is in this place called Mordona. You may have heard of it, and Mordona has is is sort of known as this like locus of energy. It's just this like spiritual place, and it's got all this sort of mysticism and reverence around it. Well, the reason that it does is because. It's sort of the center of a bunch of, like, ley lines. Like, a ton of the aether of the continent and maybe even the planet itself, the whole star, all kind of goes through Mordona. And that's, you know, pretty easy to see in how there's just, like, a ton of natural, like, ethereal crystal growth all over the place. Yeah, and there is also a sort of creation myth involving Silver Tear Lake, the uh, the kind a kind of guardian appointed appointed by some of the twelve to to guard this this center of spiritual energy. So obviously, uh, Gaius decides. Well, this is a perfect first step. There's so much etheric energy flowing around. There's got to be some ceruleum around here somewhere. And it's not very well defended. This is a perfect staging point for the spearhead of our invasion of Eorzea. Before this, Sid Garland, um, having just sort of watched his dad vaporize himself and a bunch of other people in an apparent fit of madness, and and seeing the Magitek hordes of Garlemald preparing to just lay waste to an uh, an unprepared Eorzea, decides that it is his like moral duty to defect 
and help the people of Eorzea prepare for this invasion. So he and uh, a bunch of his, like, best and brightest engineers uh, leave the Garlean Empire and become defectors. They do, and uh, that's fairly helpful to uh, to the Eorzeans for a lot of reasons, uh, especially because uh, the war is about to kick off in a pretty major way. Uh, though, sort of luckily for Eorzea, there's... Uh, the Battle of Silver Tear Skies happens, and this isn't something that Gaius was really preparing for. So, you know, they fly in on their big, huge battleship, the Agrius, like the biggest blimp ever made, that kind of thing. And uh, mostly the plan with taking over Mordona is to basically isolate it and prevent anyone from coming in and summoning more primals. Because, of course, primals are, like, the sort of justification for Garlemald's invasion of the rest of the world, but also they're a huge pain in the ass to actually deal with fighting because, you know, they enthrall people and they use magic and it's just sort of a big deal. So, you know, Gaius is like, yeah, cool, we'll cut you know, two birds with one stone, we get a nice foothold, get rid of all this, you know, primal summoning business. Unfortunately, Midgard Sormer lives there and doesn't really like the fact that a bunch of people are exploding his lake house. So, the greatest of worms, father of all dragons, uh, takes to the skies and fights the Empire to the death, summoning untold hordes of of dragons from a region called Dravania to assist him and, and basically completely kicks the Empire's ass at the cost of his own life. He destroys the Agrius by wrapping himself around it and causing all of its Ceruleum tanks to explode. Um, you can still see this sort of landmark in uh, 2.0. Uh, the, the corpse of Midgard Stormer wrapped around the Hulk of the Agrius. And uh, Gaius and Baelsor was basically forced to flee back to Alamigo with his tail between his legs. And it, it, it wasn't just a military defeat. The exact thing they didn't want to happen, happened. Um, the reason that they were invading Mordona in particular, as you said, is because they were very worried about primals. And the etheric density of Mordona makes it perfect to use for summoning primals. So the myriad tribes of Eorzea all gathered there and all summoned their gods and just sort of caused a whole bunch of havoc across the entire continent. Yeah, well, they the thing is, they didn't just go to, to Mordona to summon their gods. What, what happened uh, specifically was Mordona had sort of a seal placed on it, um... And that seal sort of kept most of that excess uh, aether trapped there in the big crystals and that sort of thing. Um, so it wasn't. It was kind of like a like a big reservoir, and it was just catching a bunch of this energy and you know only doling it out a little bit. It was like a big dam, and Gardelmall just bust that dam. Uh, wide open. So now there's all this energy all over the continent and everybody's scared because a bunch of blimps just had a big fight with a dragon and they're pretty concerned about their well-being. So now everyone's summoning primals and it's a big problem for everybody involved. So Van Balesar in his seat of powered Alamigo 
attempts to do some damage control. He sends a whole bunch of airships to the city-states of, of Eorzea, dropping loads of Link Pearls uh, onto them, which played a repeating message, uh, basically telling everyone that, like, if you submit to Imperial rule and hunt down the quote-unquote beast tribes, you will be rewarded. Now, frankly, most people were suspicious of this, considering that he had just tried to invade them. So there was not really any course of action taken by the by the city of Eorzea, but that doesn't matter because eventually the White Raven returns and says, Hey, I have discovered a way to control Dalamud's fall. I have mastered Meteor. And the Emperor, uh, Mr. Solus over here, he was getting a little antsy. He was getting a little cagey because this war was not really going to plan, wasting a lot of resources. Uh, you know, they they had really planned for this uh, campaign in Russia to not take very long, and the snow's coming. So, <laughs> you know, they 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 they've got some some time crunch issues. So yeah, he's like, okay, 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 nail. You got your money back. Make Meteor happen. Yep. And so he was basically put in charge of the campaign again. Uh, technically, Gaius was still there, but the the sort of general attitude that uh, pervaded the ranks of the 14th and, and 7th legions leaned much, much less towards Gaius's, like, sort of, you know patriarchal conquest kind of thing and much more towards nail van darnus's uh scorched earth policy just a sort of brutal swift sort of situation yeah um, like, which is something that gaius was concerned about yeah gaius was not happy gaius so gaius is kind of a weird guy um in a lot of ways, but uh, one of one of his things is that he's got like a very like I don't know like like pre-Napoleonic disposition to him. Mm-hmm. He's really into this like mythos of the professional army, right? Like to him, he thinks about like ah yes, you know we you know two strong nation states. Uh, battling on the open field together, the great game, this big chessboard, and then we're moving our pieces around, and, and, and we have, like, these sort of, you have, like, your rival commander or whatever, and, you know, you, you have this professional courtesy towards each other and towards the enemy, and there's this, like, sort of military honor concept to the whole thing, where he's very like, okay, you know, we are fighting an army. We're not fighting the individuals. We're we're here to take over this territory and administer it, not burn it to the ground. Nail, Nail doesn't have those kind of compunctions. Nail Van Darnus is just here to make stuff explode. Nail Van Darnus is here to win, no matter what it takes. Uh, during this time, spies in Alamigo reported just sort of daily slaughters that were carried out by the uh the like troops there to harden their hearts and make it a reflex according to van darnas so you know 
He's he has a certain way about him, and Gaius has a certain way about just a, him. Just a real and cool cat, this guy. They yeah, they didn't get along, and uh, he also he, so he began, you know, he's in back in charge of Project Meteor, and he requires a lot of fucking uh, aether to make this thing happen. So he begins sending out small detachments of the Seventh Legion to aether rich places, such as the Thousand Maws of Todorak in in the Twelveswood. And Dismail Darkhold, a fortress in the sort of northern part of Eldenod, Coerthus, uh, to, like, begin mining aether-rich crystals and carting them back to Alamigo. Yeah, which is very interesting. So, uh, the thing is, in, in 2.0, in the main game, so uh, Dismail Darkhold and the Thousand Maws, uh, these are dungeons that exist right now. They, like, they're in the game. And they've been in the game since 2.0. Um, but sort of an issue with those dungeons is they, they're kind of weird. They don't make a ton of sense. Uh, they're just a bit strange. And the, at least from what I remember, obviously we'll be replaying them soon enough, but from what I remember, uh, the actual justification for going there and sort of the story reason is kind of light. Uh, it's, it's just sort of weird and inside of these dungeons you have like a bunch of garlean like tech you have to do stuff with like you have to um uh like use these like garlean transmitters in both of those dungeons um and that never really made sense to me when i played the game uh the first time but it makes a lot of sense now that uh that i know that at 1.0 the reason there's Garlean tech in there is because the Garleans were in there mining crystals. And during all of this, Dalamud, whose hue had sort of softened, uh, became bright red again, which is a, you know, last time that happened, a whole city exploded. So not necessarily a good, a good change. Uh, many of the people in Orzia were very concerned about this and, and were struggling to sort of comprehend what exactly it meant. Yeah, sort um, of an ill omen. and Very ill omen. Uh, as the omens sort of... The, the omens started stacking a little bit, because while all of this was going on, you also had rumors start to spread around Eorzea. People were starting to get very... Uh, not suspicious. Uh, superstitious. People were getting very superstitious. They were getting very people were were getting really into like into into the faith and that sort of thing as you know is typical of a realm in crisis but one rumor in particular started standing out there was a enigmatic cloaked figure who frequented camps and city-states across the realm reciting an ancient prophecy of calamity the seventh umbral era would soon engulf the world, and this mysterious individual had a name. This was, of course, Urianje Arugelt. I believe that's how you say his last name. Um, just kind of a weird guy who was going around saying that, like, the 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 seventh umbral calamity is upon us, uh, and no one really knew what to think about this guy. Some people thought perhaps he was some kind of serial killer living in the woods due to the fact that his entire vibe is just 
kind of fucked. Let's all be honest yes, here. Yes, um, Especially at this point. Uh, other people thought him to be one of, like, responsible for the six on their umbral calamity. And then there were still others who were like, what if he's one of the archons who helped stop it? But one man was certain of what he thought about Urianje, and that man was Nell Van Darnus, who immediately zeroed in on him and said, he needs to go. Yeah, this because, this dude's gotta go. Because, unlike the the straightforward and, and very much uh, secular Gaius, Nell Van Darnus basically ran his entire military campaign off of the Divine Chronicles, the kind of tome that that chronicles the the ages of eorzea and the calamities and the archons so he was very familiar with all of this uh talk about calamities and he thought it was uh all dangerous bullshit and he needed to wrangle him in as quickly as possible because clearly nothing bad is gonna happen he's just gonna drop a moon on the continent nothing bad will happen because of that and this guy is just lying about it to sh- stir shit yeah literally to the point It'll that apparently he like uh darnus himself was just showing up to like people's houses in aorese he just show up and be like hey this guy sucks right we're on the same team that this guy sucks let's get this guy it didn't work so, very well, by well the way. <laughs> yeah he never found him so while van darnus is on a wild goose chase across aorese trying to find one weird man uh there were a bunch of other weirdos of various shapes and sizes also operating on in the shadows uh a, cer- a certain group of allies that uh that worked with with Arianje here um by you know some names you might know yishtola ida papalimo and thancred were using the cover of, of darnus's attention being entirely focused on this you know one weird guy to like restore could to, to go around the realm and bring the grand companies of Eorzea back to their former glory in preparation for the troubles ahead. Yes, the troubles were definitely brewing and they were getting closer, so those grand companies were sort of important. You you had like this sort of period where you had like Sid going around and trying to chase the uh the Garleans out of like Todorok and Darkhold, uh, getting like some information on there, sort of, sort of just trying to keep keep the Empire uh, on the back foot uh, as much as possible, while uh, everyone else sort of tried to figure out exactly what Meteor was and how Nail was planning to uh, to put it together. Um, and the people who were primarily responsible for doing that were the group of Archons that we just mentioned under Louis-Sois Lavalier and, um, and his, that is not how you say his last name. How do you say that last name? I never, I never say it right. Leveilleur. 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 So Louis-Sois Leveilleur, uh, and his circle of knowing, which is, uh, which is what that was, that was called. You might, you might think, oh, the scions of the seventh dawn, nah, circle of knowing. That's the, that's the original right there, baby. Well, technically, we're still in the uh, 7th or the 6th Umbral Era. Is that what we're in? Uh, I think it's 6th uh, astro- uh, Astral Era, I believe. That's true. So, yeah, we aren't even in the 7th Era yet. So, no, they are just the Circle of Knowing. Um, and most of them, you know, hailed from various places. 
Uh, Yishtola hailed from the uh, the the abandoned Sherlian uh, colony in Dravania uh, that had been left to rot for unknown reasons a few years back. Uh, Thancred and we was was sort of pulled off the streets and and all of these various things. Louis basically collected the this group of of great minds. And independent thinkers to to sit down and, and and really figure this shit out. Yeah, and the sort of conclusion they came to is, hey, we we got to stop this guy like immediately because this is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. Um, but the uh, the Imperials advancing were only one part of the problem, only one sort of gear in this doomsday clock. Uh, one of the problems was the primals being summoned. Uh, and in fact, it started with Ifrit being summoned by the Amalja. Boop, boop. Hold on a moment. There's an insert here. So, Ifrit is indeed the first primal you fight in the 1.0 patches, and also in uh, A Realm Reborn, as we will see soon. Originally, this was not the case. Originally... This spot was taken by Leviathan, Lord of the Whorl. Yes. The, uh, the god of the Sahagan, of the ocean. Now, they changed this after 2011 uh, due to the horrifically destructive earthquake and tsunami that struck Japan. They thought perhaps the tsunami dragon would be in poor taste, and so they just... Replaced him with Ifrit. Yeah, probably a good call, frankly. Uh, I, I think yes. that would have probably came off pretty poorly if they, you know, released their their cool new game in 2012, and they were the very first like big boss you fight is the Tsunami Dragon. So yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, Leviathan will show up eventually. Just not yeah, right not now. Not right um, now. But don't worry about it. Louis Louis Suarez whole deal is basically he was traveling around the city states explaining what exactly was going on with the Garlean Empire and why the worst guy you know technically made some good points. Because primals are indeed a very real threat to the land. Uh, they they drain ether and, and eat it all up. Uh, you know, sort of slowly killing the land the longer they exist. Um, prolonged summoning will eventually just completely ruin a, uh, a landscape. And, and so they do have to die. Um, so they, they set about, uh, convincing some adventurers to like fight these primals and, and fell them to sort of get the, get the ether flowing once more. Yes. And... So we, uh, we, we go in, you know, player character goes in and everybody, uh, takes care of some of these primals, you know, you get, you get Ifrit, defeat Ifrit and that sort of thing. And that should, you know, that should, that should be good. You know, we defeated, we defeated the, the primal, the Aether should go back to the land and that sort of thing. Uh, it sort of didn't work out quite as neatly as that. You see, the thing is... Um, Nail had a little bit of a secret. Uh, he was watching that whole time, 
And he does this whole speech about how actually the Empire is really good because we're wiping out primals everywhere and they're a threat to the star. That kind of thing. But actually, I'd like to I'd like to read his insane screed because it because this this speech not only just made everyone on the ground sort of blink blankly at him, his own soldiers were like, what the fuck is he talking about? Oh, yeah. What is happening right now? So after Ifrit is defeated, a fucking airship carrying Nail of Undarnish shows up and he says this. That the children of this land should have grown up ignorant of the sacred prophecies of yore. I don't know what he sounds like. The slumbering emperors of old Alag are surely turning in their graves. But I will not blame you for your forefathers' vengeance. Permit me to explain it, as I might to a child of Garlemald. Not as eternal. Nay, not even the dance of the stars upon the celestial sea. The hour of reckoning is at hand. Soon the crimson star shall descend and the land shall be purged of its taint. Oh, but what manner of foul shadow will the unredeemed souls of your countrymen cast by the light of judgment? The mere imagining of it cuts me to the quick. Really normal, well-adjusted guy. And then he started glowing. Yeah, he does start glowing. He's got powers, which is interesting because Garleans can't use magic. But this guy can for some reason, which is very concerning. So he uses his lance to basically infuse the Bowl of Embers, the place where Ifrit is summoned with ether, and then fucks off. And Louisois realizes that, you know, defeating a primal only lasts as long as it takes for the people who worship it to resummon it using more ether. And now there's just... It's just all over the damn place. So he needs to retreat and figure out what the hell is going on with this guy because it turns out he is literally just insane yes uh and his plan is getting even more insane by the day so you know sid's been looking into all this ether stuff and and this network and whatnot and turns out it's a little bit fucked so the flow of the network of the continent here was basically in total chaos. Uh, it didn't concentrate on the actual lake itself anymore, uh, which is where that seal used to be, if you remember. Uh, but now it's in the sky uh, because Dalamud was, is like getting closer and closer and closer to the ground and it is sucking all of the ether up into itself like a vacuum. Um, by the way, during all of these patch quests, uh, they kept updating the skybox and making Dalamid closer and closer every single time a new patch came through, which <laughs> is really scary and cool. Yeah, so not only that, every you know, when you kill a primal, normally the the flood of ether re-nourishes the land that it had been feeding off of no no longer the case every time they killed a primal all of its ether just got sucked straight into dalamud yeah and made it get closer which is a really big problem too because on top of that uh not not only is uh 
Dalamid getting closer and closer and closer to the planet with all of this ether being dumped into it, but it's draining the it's draining the land dry. It is like it's really fucking everything up for everybody, and it's weakening the actual planet itself. Hydalin is growing weaker and less capable of uh, sustaining life. This is sort of a climate disaster on top of a regular disaster. But Nail Van Darnus thinks this is great. The only actual problem that he sees is that he needs these things called tombstones, these these uh, sort of highly processed crystals filled with data that the Alligans made to like operate the moon station he had constructed. So he tells Gaius, you know, he, he pats him on the head and says, why don't you be a good boy and go fetch me some tombstones? Gaius, at this point, has realized this entire thing is like, fucked yeah he's not a Um, real fan of this situation and basically tells darnus like i there is literally nothing to be gained by conquering a land that you have scorched until nothing is left what will we get from this like what what could we what what could we possibly achieve here if you drop the moon and Darnus basically says that, well, I'm creating a blank slate. I am giving us a new world to mold as we see fit. A world to reshape in my image. And so that that kind of, you know, that and the, and the like, insistence that the Emperor is, this is what the thing that the Emperor wants. And, you know, Gaius, he's a, he's a man of the Emperor. He obeys his emperor he's a good guardian this dude has so, an i heart fact, emperor shirt on underneath of his armor at all times so you know he's not disobeying mr solace so despite the fact that he is basically entirely disgusted with everything that is going on he goes and gets the tombstones like requested uh dedicating the entirety of the 14th legion to this task uh during this search though um he runs into sid again uh, over in in Vilbrand, the the region that sort of houses uh, the, the that is home to the the nation state of Limsilamensa. Yes, and um, basically, Sid tears him a new one. Sid's just like, "Hey, you suck so bad. You are actively like like how are you supporting the idea of blowing up a third of the known world?" Uh, just to conquer it and Gaius basically counters by saying yeah this sucks and it's not good and I don't like it but hey actually this is your fault because if you were still like in the empire we could have conquered yours really fast and the emperor wouldn't feel like he had to do this so really this is all your fault dude yeah and you know hearing this from a guy he, he once considered his mentor um kind of hurts you know the the thought that like yeah all of this is your fault not only what's happening at home in garlemald but also what is going on right here uh is all on you buddy yeah so yeah Gaius is having a real normal one he's you, you know he's not deflecting not at all um and uh yeah they they basically uh they, they part ways, understanding that both of them kind of hate each other's guts now. Um, and Sid is pretty pissed that this dude just said that he is responsible for the end of the world, basically. But, you know, 
small small comfort you know they they took they took belief uh, they, they, you know they took heart in the fact that you know the tombstone that Gaius dug up is uh, basically useless I mean you know this this thing has been you know just weathered by erosion and all kinds of stuff there's no way this thing still works uh, unfortunately it still works yeah uh, Nail Vandarnas is able to extract all of the information he needs to begin precisely calculating Dalamud's fall. And he is just having a great time because he realizes there's basically nothing they can do to stop him at this point. Um, there is no way that the Grand, you know, in, unless they rally literally every single person on the continent, there's pretty much no way the Grand Companies can attack their foothold in Mordona. Even if that Louis Swan and his chosen adventurers kill primals. Although they're just going to go to Dalamud anyway. Uh, it won't matter. And so he is just like, he's kicking it. He's relaxing and he's getting ready to drop this moon on, on these, you know, uncivilized savages and to, to create his brand new world. Yes. And, and the distractions work pretty well. Like, uh, like Nail's sort of entire plan while, while uh, the, the meteor is, is set up is, hey, I'm just going to encourage everybody to summon a bunch of primals, and if it kills them, that's great. If it doesn't kill them, I get all the ether. It win-win. And this sort of culminates in um, uh, Garuda gets summoned uh, at some point, and Garuda is... A little different than how she really should be she's like way more pissed than usual and she's talking about like using her power to awaken somebody from slumber which is very weird because typically garuda as like a summoned entity is uh pretty self-concerned you know she's pretty into powering herself up uh not really into powering up other people so this is very strange and they you know also she's generally yes she is aggressive but she is a the personification of the wind she just basically goes whatever and does whatever her attacks are much more focused and centered which is concerning for louis Swass. so the he he collects his adventurers and, and fights Garuda um, and manages to, to fell her. But then her form is sucked into Dalamud once again, uh, you know, feeding it once more to, so it's about to do whatever it's doing. Yeah, meanwhile, nail is there again, just kind of chilling eating some popcorn in the in the stands over here because apparently at this point it, this is just entertainment this is just a day at the movies for this guy yeah so i won't read this speech for him but it he's he's losing it he's he's just chuckling it up and saying you know basically just like yeah kill all the kill all the icons you want uh it just it only helps me i i love it actually this is victory wine uh, but uh, but unironically, but actually true. So things are going bad here. Yeah, not great. The uh, Joker they're... is trying to crash the moon to the ground. Not great. And so basically, Louis Wah calls everybody together. He calls Sid. He calls the leader of the Grand Companies. He calls his chosen adventurers together 
to once again just figure out what to do um and basically they years in the past when back when alamigo was under the reign of of brutal monarchists uh and had sort of imperial uh ideals of its own it and tried to invade Gridania several times. This is like hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years in the past. Um, and back in those days, the city-states banded together to form the Grand Alliance of Eorzea to fight them back. Yeah, led by Ishgard um, at the time, actually, kind of hilariously. Yes. Who are not really involved in this due to, uh, well, they have a whole thing going on involving dragons over there. You know how yeah. it is. Um, but... After that, they sort of disbanded because there was no real threat. They reached peace with Alamigo and had no real need to to kind of keep that alliance going. Now, it seems as though it is time for the three city-states to band together once again. Yeah, and it takes some doing. Um, Bear in mind that uh, for a lot of 1.0... The city-states were not super huge fans of each other, right? So you have the... So you have Gridania, which is sort of Padgel, Elf, Cat, Forest land. And they're, like, really isolationist and basically only concerned with preserving the Twelves' wood and serving the Elementals, who are, like, the guardians of the Twelves' wood and all that. Um, They're sort of doing their own thing. Then you have Ulda. And Ulda is also pretty much self-concerned, though a little less isolationist. They're like, you know, merchants or whatever. Uh, And then you have Limsa, which is basically a pirate nation. And uh, they kind of actively pirate everybody else's boats, which doesn't really make people too ingratiated towards them. Uh, So... mm, this this proposal is not exactly received super awesomely at first. Yeah, and all of them are sort of, like, nervous about signing these accords uh, once the offer is brought forward by Louis Swa. And of course, Ishgard long since withdrew support from the Alliance because they thought there's no way the Garlands would invade Aldernald. Uh, now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go fight a crusade against dragons. Forever. Um forever so that leaves the 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 three leaders of the the three city seats of eorzea the pagel kane senna the the pirate you know the the admiral of limsa lamensa merlewib last name uh bluff or something listen they all have welsh names it's extremely difficult for me to say them um and the 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 sort of self-made leader of the immortal flames forged on the blood sands uh raubon alden who all three of them were sort of nervous for different reasons except for kanesena who uh signed that shit real quick because she's kind of right next to alamigo yeah gradania gradania is literally the front line here and that's part of the reason that uh everyone else is kind of hesitant to to sign this accord because they're like well uh, I mean, the Garleans aren't on our borders. They're kind of just on yours. Maybe they won't come and get us. I don't know. 
And so they basically said, okay, well, uh, Gridania is basically full of trees and racist elves who can who are really good at shooting bows. Limsa Lamensa is theoretically the naval powerhouse of the world, but there's been a lot of issues getting the pirates uh, reined in and under control, and we haven't really been focusing on building a lot of those ships. We can either can send it to the Garlean Magitek, so we're kind of on shaky ground. So we would like Olda to pay for all of this, and Raubon's like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> He he's basically he basically does the like uh the fucking Andre the Giant givers like whoa, whoa, whoa that's a lot of yeah, money yeah that's a lot of money and uh the syndicate who is like half of the government of Olda is not exactly what I would call super into giving other people their money it's sort of antithetical to their whole deal so uh so yeah Raubon's kind of got his work cut out for him uh to convince those people to pay for three armies um <laughs> including building a bunch of ships for the city full of ravenous pirates pirates who have been pirating that, them by the way yeah so basically Raubon was like listen I'll do my best to convince them to pay for things but like it's gonna be hard, uh, but the, there were there were uh, conditions put in place. One is that the unified army would be e- under equal control of all three leaders, and you know that like any costs would be equally bared by them. So so there are you know well but while they're trading offers and counter offers and negotiating. Um, Sid basically breaks into this chain of correspondence and goes, yo, we need to move right now because that big fucking evil moon fortress in the middle of Mordona is doing some crazy shit. Yeah, uh, Nail has sort of advanced the timeline uh, on the whole moon explosion thing uh, to happening immediately. Uh, So everybody sort of jumps into high gear the the grand companies mobilize and the adventurers guild mobilize and the circle of knowing gets out there and everybody's getting ready to try and fight back the seventh legion yep so sid has brought down an airship bound for this fortress castrum novum which has you know important military secrets about meteor and the goings-on in there um at this point Gaius has fully understood that Nail Vandarnus is a madman and basically has to be stopped. But he is still not willing, completely unwilling, to turn his back on the Empire in any way. He he thinks that Nail is pursuing his own agenda and deceiving the Emperor, but that doesn't mean he is necessarily siding with Eorzea here. He basically just, like, lets them take the important stuff and goes like, I mean, yeah, you're correct that uh, you got to fight Vandarnus uh, to save your your land here, but don't forget that freedom is not an option here. After the, we deal with him, you will submit to my rule. Yeah, literally, he literally he's just like, here, here's these cool papers you need. I'll let you take care of Nail, and then immediately after that. I'm going to roll in with a bunch of tanks and take over, okay, everybody? We're, we're all cool with that? So, yeah, like, 
the, the promise that uh, Gaius basically gives is, I will allow you, I will withdraw my troops, and I will allow you to take the fight to Vandarnus. But make no mistake, I will return to finish what I have started. So, that's the bad news. The good news is, they now know exactly what's going on in Castrum Novum. The bad news is they know exactly what's going on in Castrum Novum. Yeah, they now know, oh, this is so much worse than we ever could have possibly imagined. And they basically have to devote absolutely everything they have to making sure that this moon does not crash into the planet or they're all super dead. So they gather, the Archons under the command of Lusois and the Grand Companies all gather at the edge of Mordona in a last-ditch attempt to stop the lunar transmitter uh, contained within Castrum Novum, which at this point is complete and is blasting a giant pillar of light into the sky, which is never good. You hate to see it. You really hate to see it. Um, so the lunar transmitter is, you know, it's protected by a bunch of stuff. It's got, like, shield. There's, like, a big robot guy. You know the drill. You go in, you deal with that. But there's sort of a thing about that see uh nail kind of planned on this a little bit um see his whole thing is that uh this entire time he's been uh thralled by whatever it is that's inside of dalamud um and is being empowered by that entity uh it's bomb by the way it's the big dragon guy so the entire time, Gaius has had a bad feeling about that moon. He keeps feeling an odd presence at work whenever he's around Vandarnus. And Vandarnus's sort of very sudden turn into seeming complete zealotry about completing this project is odd. As are, you know, his god powers. Um, and so after they do their, you know, the classic... Uh, capital ships won't do anything, but a, a few small fighters could get in there and turn off the transmitter. Uh, Darnus is at first, you know, a little bit angry that they seemingly have ruined uh, his plans to drop a moon on them. But then things start getting weird. Uh, for one, he starts glowing red. And for two, he starts talking about Dalamud as if it is a god. Yeah, normal, normal. Um, and basically just ranting about how these these pitiful adventurers would dare stand in the way of, of the manifestation of this glorious moon's will. And then, you know, he... Uh, causes the entire castrum to like flow into the sky and explode yeah he he basically after he communicates with dalamud for a second uh he's like ah yes now i understand the creations of lesser beings are unimportant and he spears the thing you were trying to destroy the whole time he just breaks the lunar transmitter in two like it's uh like it's a twig and then he's like ah no don't worry i got part two blows up the whole place and floats it into the sky it's just like a bunch of these like floating uh big floating rocks with like gold crystals on the bottom uh it looks a lot like uh there's a there's an area in um um one of the one of the limsa places that looks like this oh yeah i mean th this the what happens 
after uh, Darnas fulfills his promise to give body and soul to resurrect Dalamud, fucks the land up a whole lot. There's a lot of floating bits now um, because of this. Uh, and the reason all of these are floating is because he has basically torn all of these bits of Allegan technology scattered throughout the world and is beginning to sort of convalesce them. And, uh, you know, this is directly after the, the Grand Companies managed to repel an Imperial invasion. Everyone is, is feeling good. They feel like they can actually maybe win. Um, and then things go sideways very quickly. Things go real sideways. Uh, all this elegant tech that's now floating in the skies above Silvertier is, uh doing the big glowy beam thing and is pulling Dalamud really close to the earth uh, or really close to Highland rather uh, really really quickly and uh, basically the deal is uh, that everybody needs to go up there and kill this guy immediately or the world is basically toast Uh, funny uh, additional thing here is that uh, so they they find out you find out a couple of things first off Dalmud, you know, coming down ends up not actually being a part of the Meteor Project, right? Because the Meteor Project was designed, you know, at least on paper, to give Garlemald the ability to cast Meteor the spell, which is literally just pull something out of space and then throw it at the ground. That's all Meteor is. But... In reality, this whole time, Nail Von Darnus has been thralled by the thing that lives inside a Dalamud who wants to get out real bad. So they, you know, Sid brings the Enterprise. He volunteers the Enterprise to bring our, our party of adventurers to fight the White Raven. During this, they, they manage to kill him. But then, of course, he powers up, gives himself fully over to Dalamud and becomes, you know... A JRPG boss. Yeah, looks um, pretty sick, honestly. Uh, in this, in this, yeah. in the screenshot that we sort of have here, uh, it's got like these big, sort of like crystal spike wings, just kind of floating. Uh, it looks pretty cool. So, they do manage to kill him. Uh, he he uses a last ditch effort. He uses Mega Flare to attempt to destroy them all, but. He does nothing but steal his own fate. He he has exhausted his ether, the the force that is controlling this shell, the the thing within Dalamud has no use for him anymore, and so he he fades away and is absorbed into the moon he loves so yeah, he much. Yeah, he just dissolves and goes away. And you may think, ah, he is dealt with. The day is saved. No, <laughs> because. <laughs> Dalamud is real close and real red. Yeah, so they've prevented the worst outcome. The worst outcome was that Dalamud just slams into the ground max force, and that basically would have killed everybody on the continent, period, no matter what. Um, So they stopped that part. That's great. But they... Issue... The moon is tearing portals to hell. The moon is tearing portals to hell. So the moon is vacuuming up all of this ether in a completely unstoppable way now. The, the, the 
the moon is going to crack open like an egg and there is literally nothing anyone can do about it. It is too close. It is taking up too much ether. The thing that lives inside the moon is getting out no matter what. And while this is happening, uh, portals to hell are opening everywhere. Uh, you've got just like the, the empire's forces are in disarray. You've got void scent coming out of portals all over the place. You've got zombies monsters just just swarming all of the towns and the cities this like horrible glowing red ball is in the sky the whole time everything's bad it's really bad so louis swasti something has to be done something needs to unite the uh the the realm to stop everyone from you know running around in panic so he he goes around and you know seemingly to signify you know to signify hope these mysterious glowing etchings are appearing all over Eorzea the, the symbols of the gods yes uh seemingly overnight and 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 thus the people you know beginning to believe that Louis Swat truly is like an arbiter of the twelve's will um place their faith in him and then louis swa everyone's favorite grandpa gathers all of the archons and all the adventurers and he leans in real close and he tells them yeah it, uh, it's all bullshit i i carved those myself yeah yeah um, louis swa is like listen here's the problem we've run out of options this moon's gonna crack open any minute now uh we need to summon a primal to deal with it everybody's like that seems like a terrible idea and he's like you're right what's plan b and everyone sits there dead silent because there isn't one so the the plan is they are going to summon the 12 as primals and of course you know the thing about primals is that they are manifestations of gods but they are you know it's a whole weird thing they aren't necessarily the gods themselves right the Twelve are worshipped by the people of Eorzea, but there is no indication that they are real or not. Yeah, we, we have um, no idea about that. But Louisois is using the people's faith to sort of go to the, you know, be part of this grand summoning spell um, that will that will save their world from being torn to shreds by the encroaching void. Yeah. So during this... Uh, he is searching for an item he will only say is called Daybreak. During this search, they encounter Gaius again. He's alone in Coerthus. And he basically tells them what's up. He, he first of all congratulates them on killing Vandarnus. Uh, you know, gotta give respect where, where it belongs. He also congratulates them for, uh, or, or thanks them for allowing him the opportunity to get his boys the fuck out of there the 14th has fully retreated they they minimal casualties which is i guess i guess good news for them at least yeah and he says the good news is we're leaving because shit's bad we're gonna go back to alamigo bad news um the seventh legion basically worships Vandarnus now and has all coalesced into a single big glob of Garlians around the fortress in Mordona. Yeah, they, so. they're basically all kind of enthralled a little bit at this point, and they're all like, uh, they're, they're causing issues. They're, they're just part of this, this whole big 
uh, colossal uh, problem. And uh, one of the things is that in order to pull off this summoning, they need to get to Dalamud. This is going to be... They need to get to the heart of Eorzea, the, the etheric network that is at the heart of Mordona, which is also exactly where the fortress yeah, is. Yes, right on the rocky fields of Cartanel. And this is where the events of uh, what is, is, is the cinematic called Visions of Truth? Flames, Flames of, of Truth. Truth. So Flames of Truth happens here. Um, and you can go, you can go and watch that, but the basic gist of it is, um, the grand companies all show up to try and beat back the seventh legion and, uh, give, you know, the circle of knowing the opportunity to do their summoning spell and recontain, uh, the thing that's inside Dalamud. And the thing that's inside Dalamud, again, it's, it's Bahamut. It's a big scary dragon with basically infinite power from sucking all of the ether out of the land for ages and at first the summoning spells working okay this was working all right but sort of a key factor happens here um that isn't necessarily like visible in the cutscene and nor is it really explained very much in the actual game itself but there's a really important thing that louis does in this summoning thing. Uh, and that's that he does not summon the actual primals themselves. He specifically constructed the summoning spell to only uh, summon the sort of ambient force of a primal, but not actually coalesce into a being. He didn't want there to be uh, 12 primals summoned all at once because A, that'd be really hard to deal with after the fact, and B, more importantly, if you, like, Heidelin was already pretty drained by this point because the whole Dalamud situation, if they summoned 12 huge deities all at the same time, that might just kill the planet. So they had to sort of tone that back a little bit, and in doing so they didn't give the spell enough juice to actually overcome uh, Bahamut's power here, and it fails super bad. So, like, the the Seventh Legion is entirely obliterated by Bahamut's uh, vengeful, like, fires. Because, b- basically, Bahamut has been trapped in Dalamud for a thousand years. Five thousand I don't even remember how long I think it's been longer. It's been a grip. It has been a real grip. Alag trapped him in this moon and basically used him as a battery. Yeah. And he has been slowly over the years just stewing in pure rage. And he has now come to purify the land which exiled him. So this this summoning uh, summoning circle almost works, uh, as you can see in the trailer. He kind of constructs another. Da- he begins constructing another Dalamud around Bahamut, uh, trying to bind him again. But this is you know this is the moment where it all falls apart and where he realizes that there's no way he can summon the proper twelve. Um, at this point, the Grand Companies have retreated 
Bahamut's fires have reached every corner of Eorzea. Every, you know, so many people are dying. Everything is on fire. And, you know, Louis Swa is obliterated by, by Bahamut's mega flare here. Um, and in the, it's, it, this is the part where things get really weird because he, Louis Swa is basically like between life and death, right? He is completely subsumed by the flames of Bahamut. And like spirit he he spirits the 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 adventurers away. He teleports them out of the battlefield. And then he like uses the he taps into the the power of of the gods and like stops Bahamut basically. Yeah. Or at least that's presumably what he does we're not totally sure but there is uh there is a raid series that we'll get to at some point that goes into a little bit more detail uh and has an extremely hilarious cutscene at the end of uh but we'll, we'll we'll get to that whenever we get to that content uh the 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 coils of bahamut and whatnot so and during this entire segment of 1.0 um they like there was a lot of interesting stuff happening there were like gms walking around in character as journalists basically taking everyone's like testimonies about what was happening before the servers shut down uh for good on 1.0 and this i believe they played this fmv like i don't know if they played it live or not but they certainly released it simultaneously oh they played it live and yeah they played it live and after that servers shut down and when they came back up again uh it was an entirely new game um, there were a couple other interesting when... things as well uh there was there was uh in the the final week before the game shut down there was um like they 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 wanted to spawn a bunch of enemies like high level enemies in like seemingly safe spaces right because the whole world was going to to crap because of the you know the seventh legion and the zombies and the void scent and everything so they would just throw the highest level mobs in the game just outside of the capital city entrances and at like aetherites like in just like places where guys shouldn't be you know and they they kept doing this, but the players uh, hilariously were apparently like just killing them pretty quickly. So they started just like throwing together higher and higher statted mobs and throwing them at them just to see if people could deal with it. Um, and there was one particularly uh, famous thing that happened uh, called the Great Gubu Wall, which was a ton of players got the Gubu mount and stood in like a wall in front of the gates of Olda to defend it from from the the hordes or whatever. And that was it's pretty cool. Uh, there's I believe there's another thing where um, they I don't know if it was a mechanical thing, but basically you were defending Aetherites uh, against these hordes, right? Yeah, yeah, and. All of them were successfully defended, except for one, um, which I believe is in Coerthus, in western Coerthus, or uh, central Coerthus Highlands, and that's the one that just don't that's work. That's right, yeah. If you go to uh, the, the Heavensward area, the, the Heavensward area for the, I think it's the western Coerthus Highlands, actually, there's a yeah. uh, camp down there that was 
that was actually, I believe, I believe that was in uh, one point. I believe that was a 1.0 location, actually, that camp. And, um, and yeah, that's, it's like frozen over and all, you know, beat up and that sort of thing. And it's the, it's the Aetherite design, uh, is the original 1.0 Aetherite design, which is very different looking to the Aetherites that are actually in, uh, Aerar and Onward. Those are a little bit flashier and bigger and have more stuff going on. During a convention, uh... Naoki Yoshida was asked about, because this was, this was shortly after World of Warcraft Classic had been released, um, and he was asked if there would ever be any sort of situation like that for 1.0 where they would like de- designate a couple of old servers so that people could play the original content, and uh, I will go ahead and patch his very simple response in here. Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that pretty much does, that just says it all, really. Nightmare. He doesn't want anything to do with this trash fire that he managed to, like, contain and save at the last minute. And so, you know, there are, there are still vestiges of, of 1.0 here and there. Um, the aforementioned Binding Quirrels of Bahamut raid series is very much dealing with the aftermath of 1.0. Uh, there at the end of the credits in ARR, there is a section exclusively for legacy players who have 1.0 accounts who are still playing the game. If you have a legacy account, you have the special t- access to the special title Meteor Survivor. Yeah, you um, also get like a special little like glowy tattoo on the back of your neck, uh, yep. and your name is in the credits of uh of ARR when you actually finish and beat it uh there's an entire credit segment of every single active player uh who was uh playing 1.0 at the time that uh that it shut down and that's pretty cool i think that's that's really neat the the game that final fantasy 14 is now basically bears no resemblance to the game it was uh, other than like superficially um it went from one of the most reviled shat upon MMOs probably ever released to the most successful one in the world at this point. It has officially surpassed WoW's numbers at this point, I think. Um, it's certainly surpassed WoW's critical reception. Oh, certainly. At this point. Um, and now you have people saying, like, you know, people who play a lot of Final Fantasy saying that things like Shadowbringers and Endwalker are their favorite Final Fantasy games, period. Yeah, I mean, I, I stand by stuff like that. I, I would argue that uh, Shadowbringers and Endwalker just sort of isolated and by themselves are some of my favorite games of all time, just sort of period. Um, the, you know, they they really took this game and and they they took it into a really beautiful place and um it, it was a big risk it was a really large risk that they took it was a colossal amount of effort um it was effort that you know put a lot of strain on a lot of people it is not easy to rebuild a game in less than two years and certainly not when you have to continue supporting the existing game 
while you do it. Um, this, this was a really grueling experience for the people who participated in it, and I am not even a little bit surprised that the sort of broad general stance uh, from the people who worked on it is that they don't really want to <laughs> they don't really want to bring it back in any way they want to leave that in the past and they want to build towards the future they want to make the game better than it was when they found it uh, regardless of you know when they they were brought onto the project and I think that's it's it's sort of a really beautiful core philosophy for a game like Final Fantasy XIV to have. I think it's just, it's a very resonant philosophy, both in the terms of just how the game's sort of story and cadence goes, but also just like in a broader sense. Like, it's a really cool thing to see this group of really talented and dedicated artists and programmers. Um, and writers work together to, uh, to make something that is genuinely worth so much more than the sum of its parts. You know, they took a car from a junkyard with a dilapidated engine, it's, the transmission was bent like an elbow, and nothing worked, and they've created basically a Rolls Royce out of nothing. At last year's uh fan fest event uh yoshi p called this game his life's work like he truly cares a lot about final fantasy 14 i think that he's he is a he's a long story producer he's worked on other stuff i he's involved in final fantasy 16 um but i i truly think that if anyone you know he he will point to this as the thing that he is the most proud of and he should be he should everyone should be I, I, Endwalker is the culmination of literally over like a decade of storytelling, starting from here and going through Meteor and going through all of these expansions. And now we're in a new territory where they're still changing things. They recently made ARR better. They streamlined a whole bunch of things so that people who want to get into the game now that Endwalker is out will have a better experience. They, they did. They completely changed the entire ending to ARR. It, it was previous to last week or so. Uh, they were, there were two eight-player long-form story dungeons. Um, and that's been completely reworked. It's, it's completely different now. There's like a solo duty in there. There's a trial. Uh, there's two solo duties, actually. It's, it's been completely reworked from the ground up to be more accessible and, and better of an experience for everybody playing the game. And it's, it's the willingness, I think, to commit to changes like that that make Final Fantasy XIV as successful as it is. And it all starts here. It all starts with ARR, with reborning the realm. If, you know, it's that philosophy that led to them building the game a second time that allows them to keep rebuilding the game in small ways, yeah, but doing it nonetheless as time goes on. But never, you know, never deleting the game, just remaking it and and making portions of the game better and and 
easier to get into for everybody. So after this, the, 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 our, our lectures are concluded here. We have entirely caught up to the beginning of A Realm Reborn, which means uh, next time you hear from us, we will be beginning our journey through Eorzea. That we will, and we're very, very excited to actually start that journey. Uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be starting in. Uh, I believe your character is starting in Limsa. Limsa, Limsa. Yeah, you're, you're starting in Limsa. I'm starting in Olda. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a third person to cover Gridania, but you know, I I started in Gridania originally, so I, I remember most of it. And if I need to, obviously, I can go on my main, and we'll do some new game plus stuff to sort of catch up to that. But yeah, we'll be doing the first, like, um, uh, I think we said five or 10 levels, 10 levels. We'll be doing the first 10 levels of our, of the realm reborn main scenario quest because the, the, you know, we'll get into it, but a realm reborn's main flaw really is that it is 10 levels of story stretched out over 50 levels of game because they kind of had to, yeah, it's it is like like I said earlier, it is a game that feels rushed. It doesn't feel even slightly as rushed as it should. So again, really good job. Still feels rushed. And we'll kind of get into the particulars of exactly how that shakes out uh, next time. Uh, but for now, I have been one of your lecturers, Jane. I've been your other lecturer, Nero. And uh, class is dismissed. For now, we will see you in the fields of Eorzea, listeners. <laughs>